Hello, Deconstructionist listeners. My name is Clay Kirchenbauer, and I'm a singer-songwriter from Northern Ohio. You may have heard my work on this podcast in episode 24 with Deb Harzma and on episode 41 with Alexander Shia through my band, The Undeserving. Over the past few years, I've gone on my own path of deconstruction, and as songwriters do, I wrote some songs about it, many of which were inspired by things I learned on this very podcast. John and Adam have been kind enough to allow me to share with you my crowdsourcing campaign for this project, tentatively titled Wanderer. It aims to tell stories of people on their journeys through faith and doubt, and hopefully to connect with people on a deeply personal level. If you would like to help get this project off the ground, go to gofundme.com slash claykmusic. Any donation would be deeply, deeply appreciated. And most of all, keep deconstructing. It taught me something new, you know? Really, sometimes all all it's about is going out into the street where human beings are and holding up, blessed are the poor. You know, people are hungry to hear that. It's not about it's not about anything more than that and it's not about anything less than that. Once again, everybody, to the Deconstructionist podcast. We are your ever-loving hosts. I am Adam Narlock, and I am John Williamson. And I promise this time I will I will mention the correct person. <laughs> this is take two. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Adam and I like to record multiple intros at the same time, and sometimes John gets his notes a little mixed up. So so much fun. <laughs> But uh, this is another uh, kind of almost cellar-aged bottle of deconstructionist juice here. Um, almost want to throw our apologies out to this lovely lady because we've been sitting on this for some time now. And it's, uh, I guess it hasn't been that long. Not but, too bad. But um, this is, if you love um, cutting wit and uh, a warm heart and beautiful scholarship and somebody that writes straight to the heart of what's going on, uh, our very own sort of new Phyllis Tickle in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Uh, here we have, who do we got, John? Who do we got? We have Diana Butler Bass. It's so much fun to say Diana Butler Bass. We can't put freaking in the middle again. We ran into this problem with uh, Glennon. What if we did like- Too many names. Freaking Diana, freaking Butler, freaking, freaking Bass. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, this was oh, so good. This, this is another one where um, uh, she just put out- a, I think it was the paperback version of a book that came out a year ago. Um, and it's a book that Adam and I were just like, wow, way to just nail uh, everything that's going on right now, especially within the church. Uh, but she is an, an author, a speaker, a scholar specializing in American religion and culture. Um, she's another one of those just impressive credential types. Mm. She's got her PhD in religious studies from Duke University, and she's got nine different books out, including Grounded. Um, she's just been all over the place. She's uh, named one of the, uh, let's see, sorry, the Christianity for the rest of us. That's the book I was, I was trying to pull up. Um, How the Neighborhood Church is Transforming the Faith was named one of the best religion books of the year by Publishers Weekly and was actually featured in a cover story in USA Today. Um, so she's been all over various newspapers. She writes at the Huffington Post and the Washington Post. 
where she comments on religion, politics, and culture in the media. Um, she's also been in USA Today, Time, Newsweek, CBS, CNN, Fox, PBS, and NPR. Um, she's just she's an impressive lady. And just like Ron Burgundy, she's kind of a big deal. She's kind of a big deal. And we so enjoyed. Um, yes, I'm being enthusiastic right now. I really, <laughs> I really am. I can't help it. I'm not going to stop. It was so much fun. Um, this whole book grounded in what you're going to hear in this interview, and we're just going to cut right to it because there's really nothing we can say to, to prep you guys except the, the one kind of common theme that just comes out all the time with this whole deconstruction, reconstruction, spiritual journey, blah, blah, blah. The, like certain themes that we never planned on being regular themes on the show um, often happen. And one of them is best summarized by the title of her book, just grounded that a lot of what a lot of us are detoxing from or deconstructing or being disoriented or um, considering new perspectives is this sort of escapist theology that takes our feet off the ground, pie in the sky, go to heaven when I die, kind of kind of um, religion that we're like, no, 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 no. Like it has to matter here. It has to matter now. And it, it has to be about my neighborhood. And it has to be about um, the context that I find myself in. And it has to be about, like she says, being grounded. And so that's kind of what we talk about, which um, just, yeah, common theme, right? Yeah. I mean, she absolutely blew my mind. There's an analogy she gives, um, in this interview that, that, uh, will stick with me forever, I think. So, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Let's just let them, mm. Hey, ready or not. Ready or not. <laughs> Here we go with Diana Butler Bass. All right, well, Diana Butler Bass, um, man, I don't know how it took us so darn long to get you on here with us, but we are uh, really, really excited. There's a lot to talk about, obviously, with everything that's going on in your work and the climate of the day. Uh, thank you so much for being with us here on the Deconstructionist Podcast. It's hard to resist being on a podcast called Deconstructionist Podcast. <laughs> it's like, oh, let's take it apart and put it back together again. I'm all about this. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. We we use that. We use that to catch people. So <laughs> it, it's done us good. Yeah, actually. Yeah, it really has. Well. We're, yeah. like, we're like blind squirrels that found that nut. We're like we we didn't even know that was going to be a thing. <laughs> so uh, I, I think the best way to kick this off really is uh, it, you know we're coming up on the the one year anniversary of of your book Grounded. It's coming out in paperback soon. And uh, Adam and I have just really enjoyed reading this book. I think it, it touches on a lot of the topics and a lot of the questions that, that we've had that a lot of our listeners, I think, uh, share with us um, and, and kind of this, this growing pain type of situation that the church uh, seems to have been going through at least for the last 10 years, um, depending on who you ask. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting that on this anniversary, your book seems more applicable now more than ever based off of uh, mm. the current climate and, and things that we're going through. How do you see your work in this book providing almost a guide for people currently? Mm. Um, you know, it's funny when you write a book and you never, you know the climate that you're writing it in and you sort of know what's going on in your own life, but you never know where it's going to land because you can't tell what the, you know, what's going to happen in a year or mm. a year and a half. 
so when I wrote Grounded, what I knew about myself is that I was feeling kind of dislocated. Mm. Um, although I had, I had been, uh, in my younger adult life, uh, very much part of the evangelical community. By the time I was about 30, I had really left conservative evangelicalism behind mm. and embraced a more liberal kind of Christianity, um, in mainline Protestantism in the Episcopal Church. Mm. And so, and so from the time of 30 till around 50, uh, so 20 years, two decades, uh, that really worked for me. But then I got to be my early 50s and I felt like things were really shifting again. And so my sense of dislocation was coming from uh, questioning um, my sort of whole vision of how I understood God and where the church had fit in my life mm. over uh, 30 or so years. Uh, so, so the book grounded came out of that sense of not feeling like I knew the ground under my own feet. Mm. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people feel that way. You know, it, it almost doesn't matter if you're like an evangelical feeling that, or if you're a Roman Catholic feeling that, or if you're a liberal Protestant feeling that, I think we're all kind of like, what's going on? Yeah. Um, why don't I, why don't I feel at home? Mm. And for me, um, as I wrote Grounded, the answer began to come uh, clearer, and that is I realized that I was sort of deeply influenced, far more influenced uh, than I had ever suspected um, around what I would consider now to be a very faulty view of God. And that view even though I sort of would poo-poo it or maybe sort of technically felt I had, you know, rejected it, was a view of a a God who was, you know, sort of like a divine being sitting far off in heaven in the clouds and who was above, you know, sort of everything here on, on the earth. And the relocation of my own spiritual life and the relocation of my soul was related into a sense of powerful uh, discovery of God who is here with us mm, um, yes. and who is, who is in the world of nature that we inhabit and who is in the world of neighborliness in which we make our communities. And to really challenge myself uh, to find a sense of the sacred, to find a sense of God's own personness, if we want to use that term, um, in and with us here in the world. And so grounded is my radical sort of rediscovery of something that I thought I had rejected, you know, that distant God. And I had always really trusted, you know, this kind of idea of God with us, you know, I sort of mimicked those words, Uh, but to really find that deeply and profoundly and understand its radical implications for my own life. And so that's Grounded is about. Yeah, and there's so many things that we're obviously going to be able to get into talking about here. We didn't know this when we started the show, but I think that it became obvious pretty quickly in, in some of even the most early interviews and conversations that John and I had that there was this sort of um, 
disconnectedness, like you call it a dislocation, and that what we were actually looking for was like your book title to be more grounded in something that it, it uh, everything that our theology and our you know view of the world, view of God, view of spirituality had been up to that point was very sort of escapist and very detached. And that's right. And a lot of these authors and and people that we're stumbling across that we're finding uh, so much resonance with, like like yourself, bring us back to uh, dirt and earth and flesh and blood and bone and community and and now and it, it's really really wonderful. Um, I've heard you talk about uh, your. I think you just kind of touched on it using different language, but you have you talk about your different conversions. So I. You know, like you said early on, I I think that language and that experience is so pertinent to this discussion because I think so many of us are wondering what's happening to us. And uh, as somebody that's been through some different aspects of that, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about what you mean by having these different kind of conversions and maybe speak to the place that a lot of our listeners uh, and ourselves find ourselves in. Um. I was uh, born and baptized uh, into the Methodist tradition, and uh, I was born in 1959, so that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I was ra- I was raised in in the Methodist Church, and and I was definitely raised with this idea that there was a grandfatherly God who sat in heaven on a throne, and that one day after I died. I got to meet God face-to-face. And so there was this very strong image of God. And also the Methodists, at the same time of having that idea of a distant God, a detached sort of God, we also thought that Jesus was our friend. And so there uh. was this, yeah, so there's this warmth in the Methodist tradition that comes out of uh, John Wesley's own experience, that John Wesley, when he had his conversion experience, felt his heart strangely warmed. And so we always thought Jesus was like the friendly part of God, but yet God the Father, you know, mm. was there. And we and we had no idea what to make of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so when it was what <laughs> so that was just, that was apt, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. And when I was uh, fifteen, I was very influenced um, by sort of the high tide of the Jesus movement, mm. and. Uh, so the Jesus movement in the seventies with a uh, Christian rock and roll and sort of breaking through all the denominational barriers, a very strong influence from the charismatic movement began to discover the Holy Spirit as it were. And so I had a conversion experience from my childhood Methodism, which was mostly about this distant God and the nice Jesus about being nice to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I encountered this sort of radically interesting, uh, you know, very life-giving sort of form of Protestantism that was, it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Was, but I don't know how else to explain it, you know. It made, <laughs> it, it had a sense of passion about it that was mm. very appealing to me. And it meant something, you know. And it said that God had a purpose you know, for our lives, and that God loved us all, and that God cared about us. And, and so I, I became an evangelical. I went to a Bible church. I went to an evangelical college. And um, when I was sort of in that mode, uh, my first encounter with evangelicalism was of a very intimate, sort of passionate God 
but then I found out it was about the inerrancy of scripture and women having only one place and that was underneath men, you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, what? And, <laughs> like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, somebody forgot to tell me the doctrinal part of it all, <laughs> right. you know, when yeah. I, when I, when I came in the door. And so it was like, well, as folks started telling me all the stuff that I was supposed to believe, I kept saying things like, well, wait a second. Well, what about Jesus? You know, what about the Holy Spirit? What about the God who has enlivened my heart and giving me, giving me something to do for God that was great in the world? Oh, that's okay, but make sure that you have a literal interpretation of Scripture. Yeah, yep. yep. And yeah. Um, that was the part that increasingly just became very distasteful to me, um, you know, particularly around is- issues related to gender. But it was a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, there were things that were just absolutely unbelievable, you know, uh, about science and uh, certainly the the length that people in my evangelical college would go to to try to reconcile parts of Scripture which were actually at odds with each other <laughs> yep. or the ways that the ways in which they ignored certain scriptures that they didn't like. Yeah. And, and so I found that to be very confusing and intellectually not terribly credible. Mm. And, and that meant that I was sort of open for other options. And so by the time I was in my late, uh, mid to late twenties, I had really kind of left kind of evangelicalism behind and joined an Episcopal church. And that, sort of reconnecting my life with mainline religion that I'd had as a child, it it came out differently as an adult. And as an adult, all of a sudden, it was not just about being nice, but it was about reading the Bible differently. Mm. Uh, not leaving one's brain at the door when one came to worship. It was about a sort of a re-engagement with these beautiful ancient traditions of liturgy and hymnody that have been passed down over a thousand years or 500 years. And so the, the depth and the richness and the willingness to engage a set of social issues uh, that was present in the Episcopal Church and other mainline churches, as I would eventually find out, was very compelling and uh, became my home. And so that formed a level of comfort for me for a very long time. Um, and also not just comfort, not just personal comfort, but certainly a, a level of challenge. You know, it was always, the mainline church was always asking me to look at things that I was unwilling to look at mm. and try to figure out what does it mean to live a faithful life. Mm. Um, and that is something I deeply appreciated. It was about peacemaking and about gay and lesbian issues, certainly about women's concerns, about mm. poverty. Um, so I am so appreciative of all that I was given there, but then there got to be this other time. It's about five or six years ago where I just began to feel the constraints of, um, oh, I don't know what you might want to call it. The, the memory of that distant God that even in, uh, the liberal mainline still seems to have a great impact on people. And for as much as we like to hoot and holler about, uh, you know, evangelicals got it wrong and that it's all about sort of just escaping uh, this life or another, you know, I just began to look at some of the liturgies 
that I was saying every week at Episcopal Church, and it was just a much fancier, more Shakespearean way of saying that I wanted to make sure that my butt didn't burn in hell. Yeah. And yeah. that um, I, I would spend all eternity with God on some distant planet in the stars. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, the liturgy I'm saying in church doesn't match at all the kinds of political and social concerns that the church has been teaching me over all these years. And so I just began to kind of press a theological reset button in my own imagination, in my own heart. And I, I, I felt opened up again to mm. find, God, find God in this world. And to lay aside really all the up and down kind of vertical language and not be so concerned about what's going to happen after this life nearly as much as what I care about here and now. Wow. And so, uh, so I'm, still, I'm still an Episcopalian, but I also I go to so many other churches because my work takes me all over the place. Um, but right now, my sort of richest spiritual experience is when I have a chance to go to a local Quaker meeting mm. and actually... And actually sit in silence for an hour and um, try to listen for the heartbeat of the earth and the heartbeat of God and then my own heartbeat and say, what have these three things got in common? So um, while I honor my tradition, I'm still on the list of the Episcopal Church. I love preaching and UCC and Presbyterian and Methodist and churches and Jewish reform synagogues and all the wonderful places that ask me to preach. Um, it's that silent moment, that silent place, um, that's the one that's holding the deepest meaning for my own spiritual life right now. Wow. Wow. Um, one of the things that you brought up uh, just now that I think would be really interesting for, for the listeners who aren't familiar with this concept is, uh, and it's something that co- uh, comes up in your book quite frequently, is this idea of this traditional idea of vertical theology or this three-tiered kind of elevator-style theology. Um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit, and why does that is that no longer sufficient uh, in the church today? Yeah, I actually love. Um, I, well, my daughter loved science when she was in high school, and I would talk to her about what she was learning all the time, and she began talking about physics and uh, all the ways in which her sort of training as a human being, just growing up as a, she's now 19 years old, growing up at the turn of the millennium. And I began to realize, oh my gosh, my daughter is learning about an entirely different structure to the universe than what I grew up with. Wow. Um, and though the remnants of a structure of the universe that were still sort of in play when I was her age um, were this idea that the universe was vertically structured. And that is, there was, you know, there was like the heavenly realms, and then there was earth here, and then there was the nether world. And that's the three-tiered structure of the universe, heaven, earth, and hell. And once upon a time, a very long time ago, Mm -hmm. uh, Western people actually believed that was science. It wasn't just the... (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't just sort of a, a theological structure, but it was actually a a scientific structure, and it was a social structure. Mm-hmm. And so when my daughter was talking about, like, Big Bang Theory and quantum physics and all the stuff they were learning in the 11th grade, I, I realized that, you know, certainly science, when I was her age, we were talking about atomic structure, um, 
I don't remember us ever really talking about the Big Bang when I was in 11th grade, but we, we knew about atomic substructures and we knew about evolution and some of these other things. And I, and, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, even back when I was her age, I was learning a different kind of science, but my theological structure of the universe, that three-tiered thing, was actually the scientific structure of people who lived five or 700 years ago. And so throughout my life, I had been carrying around a sort of a theological metaphor for the universe of a three-structured universe, even though the science that I was learning didn't support that metaphor anymore. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I think that this is a lot what a lot of conservative Christians get upset about, you know, because they feel like there's a war between theology and science. Right. And yeah. I had never I had never really believed that because I had the, my Methodist mainline self from my parents and um I had never really sort of bought that part of evangelicalism. But when my daughter started talking about physics, all of a sudden it was like my, a light went off for me. Mm. And I thought, "Oh my god, oh my gosh, those conservative Christians are right." <laughs> <laughs> I know it's the, don't tell them I said this. No way. <laughs> They're not listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Is that there actually is a tension between this kind of theological structure of the universe and the scientific structure of the world that we have. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, what conservative Christians are saying is they want to realign science with the science of 700 years ago to make it match the theological structure of the three-tiered universe, which is the remnant of that older worldview. And so what they want to do is change science in order to match their theology. Right. And, And their theology is based on ancient science. And then I realized what I wanted to do, of course, once I realized they were right, is that the, the real theological task was putting theology in contact with the structure of the universe we now know. Mm. And the structure of the universe we now know is not a multi-tiered vertical universe, but the structure of science as we now know it is that 14 billion years ago, something happened. And all matter that would ever come into being came into being. And that matter has been making a journey across time and space for low that many billions of years. And it's not, the universe is not vertically structured at all. It's structured along a, a plane or a set of planes or a dimension and a set of dimensions mm-hmm. across, across time and space where there is no up and down. There's only the quantum horizon. Dude. There's only the the edge of all of that matter. And so there's a beginning edge, which is more than 14 billion years ago. And there will be a future edge where there will be an ending, and we don't know when that will be. But that's what we have. The structure of the universe is along planes of time and space that move towards the edge of the beginning and the end. And so for me... That meant, okay, well, the theological metaphor of a God who's a distant God in heaven 
has completely and utterly failed because you can't have a metaphor that no one understands because their experience doesn't fit with it. And so do we have a new set of metaphors to Hmm. explain the presence of God, wonder, the sacred, all? And can we begin the, the journey of rethinking our spiritual lives and our theological structures within this new understanding of the universe. And there's lots of wonderful, amazing people who are doing that, and I just understand deeply now that part of my vocation is helping all that make sense, mm. along, with, along with these other really you know, extraordinary theologians and philosophers and poets and hymn writers and all the people who are engaged in this amazing task to create a kind of coherence Um, in our lives and our experiences and the theological traditions we've inherited. Hmm. That is so good, Diana. It it reminds me a little bit of something that uh, Krista Tippett said when she was on our show. Um, Just that, you know, what this isn't about is it's not about stepping into some place where we don't have traditions and we don't have rich liturgies and we don't have robust convictions and beliefs. And it's not stepping out into this oblivion where none of it matters and it's all okay, but it's, it's having it all. It's being able to see the expansiveness. It's being able to see the inclusiveness, being able to see the, even the interconnectedness and still having rich tradition, rich liturgy, rich, um, I hear you kind of saying that in your own way, and it just uh, so many of these conversations are are fitting together for me in just a really, really beautiful way. And I see you doing that in your book when you're talking about like fostering connectedness and um, mm-hmm. things like hospitality, and even in some of your early work. Like I remember in Christianity for the rest of us, when you talk about this, um, just this fostering this connectedness and how much more, you know, the distant God how hard that is to foster that connectedness when it, you know, we're all kind of staring up somewhere, you know, waiting for God to come down or, you know, do whatever, but, oh man. Yeah. You know, and grounded, um, I'm actually trying to foster those connections in, uh, what I would call space. You know, I'm looking at the spaces of my life, the place in which I live and move and have my being. And so the first half of the book is about finding God in the places of nature. So I talk about God in, uh, dirt, water, and air, mm. and talk very intim- intimately about my own backyard, about walking along the Potomac River, which is a mile and a half away from my house, and just, you know, about how we move through the sky all the time, because the sky begins at the earth, you know? Yeah. Which is something that's <laughs> really interesting. You know, people never think about that, you know? That's true. That's so funny. <laughs> Let's just give everybody a minute right now to just think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we talk about God being in the sky, but the sky begins at our feet. Man, you know? whoa. <laughs> so it's like, like hello. <laughs> that is so, so awesome. Yeah, so that's one of the places, you know, that I talk about God, the, the God present in those physical spaces. And then I talk about God in the places of our, of our communal life, our, our families, our homes, our neighborhoods, our commons. But probably the, in some ways, the most interesting chapter in Grounded for me, and it was the first chapter written, and this is one of those secrets that people uh, who aren't with the writer 24-7 for like a year don't know. know. (laughs) Uh, Chapter four, the chapter on roots, uh, which is a chapter about ancestry and family 
history. Yes. That chap that chapter was actually written first. Talking about that your Quaker roots and mm-hmm. Yeah. And that chapter is the only chapter in the book that's not about a place. It's about time. And so oh, man, yeah. when you're when you're talking about tradition, um, in Grounded, the one chapter that's really about tradition, reclaiming the wisdom of the past, is that chapter. And um, I tell the story, I don't want to give too much away, uh, but I tell the story of finding out very unexpectedly that my family were actually Scottish Quakers uh, rather than German Lutherans. <laughs> and what... <laughs> And besides being a really great Ancestry.com commercial. Um, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> it's also a story about understanding who I'm related to through time and how that changes my whole sense of uh, my spiritual inheritance. And so in Grounded, that's the only place where the dimension of tradition and time appears. But I've spent a lot of words in other books, writing about tradition and the value of tradition. And one of my written book that was written in 2004 and might have been the book that got my work really pulled to the attention of my first audience, which was that of mainline pastors. There's an entire chapter in that book that I talk about tradition. Mm. And I, I came up with this idea that part of the life of faith community in the 21st century was um, what I called re-traditioning. Mm-hmm. And that community should not be in the position of simply accepting traditions as if they were museum pieces. Right, you know, you, right. Like, you, like inheriting a statue or a vase and then putting it in a, you know, a glass box and saying, oh, look at that beautiful thing we've inherited from our ancestors. But instead, I talked about how tradition was a living reality Mm. and that every generation is called to take uh, tradition, not maybe as a vase or a statue, but to take it as clay Mm. that has been handed down from the past. And so that's how I wrote about it in 2004. You know, now I might almost want to write about it... um, in a more, perhaps this is more of a feminist theology metaphor, uh, but the idea of a sourdough starter. Oh, I'm, that's awesome. I know <laughs> I like exactly it. what you mean. As soon as you said that, come on, that's not feminist. I love to bake. <laughs> me too. Oh God, I'm so my my wife has completely given me the reins for baking as well. So she she's a cook, likes to experiment. You can't do that with baking, and she doesn't understand that. So <laughs> oh, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Seth. You get it. You know, people pass down sourdough starter, and you know there are bakeries in San Francisco, for example, that have had the same sourdough starter for more than a hundred years. Mm. And to me, that's what tradition is. I like that. It's the sour. It, it's the sourdough starter, you know, and and um, so I never want anybody to ever reject the past, but we have to think about the past differently. Yeah, we could also talk about it in terms of uh, the yeast strains that they use for beer brewing or distilling. How about that? Oh, there, there you go. I'm I'm one hundred percent with that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. That's a great. That's a great. I love that. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, that's a very beautiful analogy. Instead of being imprisoned by the tradition, it's something that you embody and re-embody and embody and re-embody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you just keep making different things out of it through time. And so in a sense, it has, you know, some of the same essence that has been present for the whole life of the thing, but you get new meals constantly, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I I, I just... uh, so in both of those cases, you know, the rejection or, you know, thinking, because that's what liberals are more likely to do. Liberals will say, oh, well, you know, we can't have anything to do with that tradition stuff because it's, all, it's right. all wrong. Right. You know, we always have to break, break with the past. Yeah, it's all oppressive. Um, it's all oppressive. Yeah. And the conservatives, of course, say, oh, no, you can never violate anything that our ancestors, you know, you have to keep it, you have to keep it 100% you know, traditional, or you have to keep it 100% on scripture. And both of those are wrong. Yeah. Both of them are wrong. Mm. And there's something beautiful to that too, because you, at the same token, when you inherit, you know, um, the, the dough or, you know, the, the, the yeast strain or whatever, you can't let, let it just sit there either or else it dies. So you have to continue to care oh, for right? it and feed it, you know, for it to continue to thrive. Oh, I was just going to say to me, and so to me, that's what, um, all of the great world's religions are are like at their very best. Yes, that they are these these bodies of living wisdom and these bodies of what I would call flexible practice that keep getting handed on. And if they aren't about wisdom and they aren't about lived practice that you know fluidly moves through time, uh, then they either just become stale and kind of disconnected or that, you know, the other possibility is you just say, well, that's not important. And then people move on and try to reconstruct something or kind of not reconstruct, but they just try to make something new entirely, um, you know, with what they think is the needed wisdom now or what practices work now. And so I think of that, that wisdom and, and spiritual practices are in a sense very much, um, the yeast strain or the, or the sourdough starter. And, uh, I think that this is just a terrific, um, set of metaphors and obviously they make sense to us in our lives where we are in this conversation. And so that means that these are good, this is a good way of engaging this kind of conversation to help Mm. it make sense to people's experience. Absolutely. So good. And I think actually that kind of flows into my next question uh, pretty well. One of the sections of the beginning of Grounded that really struck me, um, you, you had some statistics at the very beginning that really kind of, I had seen similar statistics before, but I, I don't know, maybe I just didn't, didn't really sit down and process it, but it, it just kind of blew me away. And uh, just to list a couple of them, you say almost one in four Americans no longer identify with any particular religious tradition. Uh, one in three when talking about Americans under the age of 30, um, these numbers mm-hmm. you mentioned are even higher in Europe. And the most interesting t- statistic is the sheer number of people uh, who are leaving religion every single year. Yeah. And I, I tell Adam and I talk about this all the time. We wouldn't have a podcast if it wasn't for this huge group of almost uh, disenfranchised former religious folks who, for whatever reason, just feel like this glove just doesn't fit anymore for some reason. And they're looking, they're spiritually curious. They're looking for something. And I think um, you kind of talk about something 
um, in a way that like Phyllis Tickle talked about years ago in some of her books, um, just this new kind of, um, you know, I guess it kind of started with the emergent church, but uh, you know, that kind of movement, but almost this new revolution within the church. Is that what you see happening? And, and what do you think, what do you think uh, the church can do as a whole to kind of offer something tangible to these people who are just, the, you know, the old style denominationalism isn't just isn't working anymore. Um, yeah. Aren't those statistics something though? I mean, and, and that's just exactly right. One in four Americans are unaffiliated. If you look under 30, it's one in three. And I think the number that you were reaching for, it's roughly 700,000 Americans a year are leaving behind their birth religions or religions that they adopted, you know, somewhere along the line wow. in order to become nothing. Um, wow. None of the above. Yeah. It's huge. And, and, um, I'm not sure the statistics are going to change anytime soon. I think that that we're in this for a while. Yeah. So, so what needs to happen? Well, certainly one of the things we're seeing is is still a massive amount of denial uh, by denominations and even independent congregations. Yep. You know, I don't see a lot of the mega churches even engaging in a conversation like this at all. Um, and when you go to most mega churches, even you don't encounter the same number of young adults that you once did. No, is that the the average age in mega churches now is about fifty five? I believe that. And the average, yeah. yeah, it's so it's an aging demographic, and then uh, the mainline congregations. I think the average age is sixty two, um, and so that's a. That's a significantly aging demographic. And and so yeah, I have to say then, well, is there any hope for any kind of organized or institutionalized forms of religion? And the answer at this point is I just don't know. I once had a lot more confidence that religious institutions would be able to adjust to this kind of what I I think it's a huge cultural critique. Yeah. It's almost like these People are pointing at church and saying, please do something or we're going to leave. Yes. And the church is just let, just sort of have said, oh, no, you'll come back once you get married and have children. Yeah. Yeah. And Diana, if they are talking about it, and I can say this because I'm, I'm a pastor of, a, of an evangelical church, uh, I'm glad they still let me do it. Um, <laughs> right. If they are talking about it, they're shaming it. Right. That's right. And I have stood in rooms, again, most of my sort of physical audience has to this point been liberal, moderate to liberal Protestants. I have stood in rooms where I have begged people to stop saying bad things about the young adults who are leaving the church. I said they have a legitimate critique and you're not listening to them. And people say, oh, no, you know, when, once they grow up, they'll see things the way we see it, and they'll all come back. And I will just stand there, and I will say, don't you understand how that is? You're, you're actually treating these human beings who can think for themselves mm-hmm. as, if, as if they're less than, you know, just because they're younger than you. I said, please listen to what they have to say. Absolutely. And folks will not will not listen. 
Well, no. you you completely just answered uh, flowed into the next question I had, which is that I, I think that's that's a huge point because a lot of the people who follow our podcast and follow similar podcasts to to what we're doing are immediately attacked by more of the traditional uh, conservative side of Christianity as just being a bunch of liberal hippie church hopping, you know, religious nomads. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think that sells them very short. I think these these are people who are spiritually hungry and who are intelligent and and well read and well educated and they're they're looking for something that just hasn't been provided so far. Yeah, and and that's really disturbing. I I I have tons of slides that I show in presentation. <laughs> and one of the one of the sets of slides is not just the numbers of people who are leaving. I show those, and then I show an, another set of slides. And the other set of slides shows how many people, even among the people who are leaving, still believe in God. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so there's what I call a God gap. And you have millennials, for example, who only about, oh gosh, what is it? There's, there's 30, the last number I saw about millennials, 36% of them are religiously unaffiliated. And about, um, I think it was 25% are white Christians. About 10% of those people are Christians of color. And then the rest are other world religions. Okay, so you have almost 40% of the generation who is now religiously floating uh, in terms of their identity. Um, But 80% of those same people still say they believe in God. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's a huge gap. And, And it's like, well, that's not their problem. That appears to be the problem of the religious. Yeah, yep. And you go in and you then further ask millennials who have left religion behind, why have you left it? And public religion research just recently did a survey on this, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. 60% of the people who have left the religion of their youth say they've left it because they can no longer believe what the religion teaches. Wow. Wow. And so... So whether some of those people, of course, might have been Jews who have left, some are liberal Protestants, some are evangelical Protestants, some are Catholic, some might be Muslim. Um, but it appears that whatever, whatever they were, it does seem to have something to do with how all of those religions are teaching about God. Is, aren't those statistics incredible? They're incredible. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking about how how many of them, I think, and this is more of an intuition, I haven't read any stats on this, but how many of them would be willing to stay if they just saw any effort being made toward that at all? Like, I feel like they'd be very gracious and generous. It's like, just, just try a little. Just, just, right. try, just try a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Um, and I... I think what's happening that's so fascinating is that people are, you know, they're searching for these new connections, and they're not antagonistic in certain ways. No. You know, there's a growth of atheism in the United States, and I can understand that. I have amazing conversations all the time yes. uh, with atheists and post-theists that I have, and, and humanists, who I have intense respect for. Mm. Um, but, um, for example... 
the hunger I think there is to connect with religion. Mm-hmm. I was this past Saturday a week ago, so now people can sort of spot when we did this recording. Uh, Saturday a week ago, I was at the Women's March in Washington, D.C., right oh, after the, the inauguration. Yes, girl. I was following yeah. you on social media. I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there, and I was tweeting it, and I was uh, putting it up on Facebook and stuff. And um, I... I didn't really have a group to go with, so I connected up with a, a, a group of friends of mine who are mostly uh, women who are clergy, and there are a couple writers also in this group, and uh, we decided that we would meet up at the march and that some people would bring signs, et cetera. Well, I got there first, and, and boy, it was amazing, you know, how huge the crowds were, and I was feeling like no one would ever find me who was from <laughs> who were my friends. Uh, but eventually they found me, and we were in front of, uh, we met up in front of the American in, the American Indian History Museum in Washington, which is part of the Smithsonian. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is a little uh, stale. I just got back from Denver, so I've got sort of Denver drive throat. Um, <laughs> but uh, so outside of the American History Museum, there's a kind of water feature uh, which looks like a, a kind of a river. And around that, there are all these these rocks. And so the outside of the museum has this little bit of an edge of looking like a Western landscape. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I, my friends eventually found me. So I'm standing there in my little pink hat, and my friends come running up, and they have all these signs. And I said, oh, what did you put on the signs? You know, And so I start looking at them. And, the, and these young, most clergy women, mostly in their 30s, um, had signs that said things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, my gosh. They had put the Beatitudes on the signs and made a different sign for each one of the Beatitudes. And then they added some kind of contemporary Beatitudes. And so not only did we have blessed are the poor, but we had blessed are the uninsured, uh, blessed are the immigrants, blessed are the indigenous. Blessed are the immigrants. Blessed are the LGBTQ. Mm. And so we had this sort of mixture of these contemporary and the traditional Beatitudes. Well, as the crowds built up, we got more and more sort of shrunk into this little tiny group, and we're kind of holding our signs down really low. And so finally, one of the women in the group said, oh, let's, let's climb the rocks. And so we scurried up these rocks, and we're standing above the crowd on this little mound, and we were holding up these signs of the Beatitudes. And as people filed by this particular location in the march, they started cheering the Beatitudes. Wow. Man. And so here's this crowd of old women and young women and white women and Asian women and black women, Hispanic women, there were Native American women, all of these people and a few men thrown in um, who were going by, and when they saw signs, they would call out things like, yes, the poor are blessed. And they would say, blessed are the indigenous. You know, and so they, they were cheering our signs. Wow. And I, I, was, I was standing there, and all of a sudden, I mean, certainly the Beatitudes came alive for me in this entirely different way, because the Beatitudes come from the Sermon on the Mount, and we were standing up on a bunch of rocks, holding, just holding up the signs, 
And I, I realized the power of how Jesus must have sounded standing up there on that hillside to that crowd, that sea of humanity just drifting by. Mm. You know, Blessed are the poor. You know, it wasn't a comforting little thing. He was shouting at the top of his lungs to he- so the crowd could hear. And the summary of the Beatitudes is really, blessed are all of you who are the victims of empire. Yeah, yes. God favors all of you who are outcasts, who feel silent, who have no voice. And there we were, just holding up those signs. And the crowd was cheering us. And then people started saying things like, so glad the church is here. Jesus rocks. Oh, wow. And, and he were, really does. <laughs> yeah, and they were coming up to us, and they were asking us to pray for them. And I thought to myself, and churches are in decline. Yeah. And yet here we are, we are standing in the middle of a crowd of the most socially liberal supposedly secular people in America protesting the inauguration of Donald Trump, and they're cheering the Beatitudes. Oh, that was church. That was church. Don't say a word, no, don't tell another. Just one little white lie won't hurt ya. Keep it a secret and you'll feel better. No one has to know. Diana Butler Bass drops the drops <laughs> yeah. the mic on the deconstructionist podcast. <laughs> I don't even know what to say after that. Oh man. Oh. Yeah. Well, it taught me. And if we can't get that, if Christian people can't get that into their brain, and of course for Jews, it's about holding up the sign about you know love God and love your neighbor. You know, and for Buddhists, it's about holding up a sign, understanding the heartbeat of the universe. You know, and we all got our sign. And, and I think that if we just hold those signs up, that the crowd that's wandering by, they want that wisdom. They want to hear those words, and they want to connect with that. And then somehow or another, that's going to help us remake all of these traditions. But we're not there yet because people are turning away from us and not toward us. And we can't remake the church until we have the confidence of an entirely new generation of people who understands that we're standing with the poor, we're standing for justice, we're standing with black people, we're standing with people who feel like they have no voice. Until that moment, we have nothing to say about what the future of the church is going to look like. But once once that trust is regained, once we understand the power of our own wisdom, then something new will be born but we might be trying to push it too fast. I think just right now, it's just just about holding up the sign. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, That is so good. I think so many of our listeners, I think this ties really well into something else we could talk about before. uh, I think John's got one or two more questions for you, but um, so many of our listeners are, are experiencing what we've been talking about for the last, you know, 45 minutes or so. They're experiencing this, um, the disconnectedness, the dislocation that you felt, the leaving uh, the feeling guilty and, and sh- ashamed of that, either by their family or their friends or their previous denominations or, or whatever. 
and they're experiencing this, um, yeah, we call it a deconstruction, but you can call it whatever you want, this feeling of home, homelessness. Um, and I wonder um, how, how might the conversation we just had about that's what potentially the church could look like, how these two things might fit into a conversation about what does this, this Christianity after religion kind of look like? Let's talk a little bit about that because so many of our listeners have left a place but they still feel in, the, in their heart of hearts Christian, but they're not exactly sure even what that is anymore. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. What, what are your thoughts on this, this Christianity that we still have after we've left religion? Um, I think that's what I was trying to outline and grounded, yeah. you know, sort of what it, look, what it looked like for me. And um, I see, I say it and ground it in a very non-technical way because one of the things I'm always trying to do is I'm not writing books just for Christian theologians or just for pastors. Right. I'm writing books for people who would come into Barnes & Noble who would feel you know, some affinity with Christianity and yet still feel kind of lost. And yeah. I think that you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to do, right towards the public square, as it were, yes. of faith. Um, so, so it, in Grounded, I talk about this reconnection with neighbor and nature. And the theological piece for me that was present there is the idea of the incarnation. Yes. In, and um, I think that so much of the Christianity that we know has spent time emphasizing the resurrection. And when we emphasize the resurrection, we're emphasizing really the absence of Jesus from the world. Um, and so I, I thought back on my own experience, and I'm not even sure I actually wrote this down in the book, but it certainly was part of my process as I was working on the book. Um, I, I'm going to be 58 next month, and I've gone to church almost my entire life. And... I thought about the thousands of sermons I have heard on the resurrection. Yeah. And then, and then I realized that in comparison, I had probably heard less than a hundred sermons on the incarnation. Yeah. And I have even heard, and most of those sermons have come on Christmas morning. Yep. Um, but, uh, or, or Christmas Eve. And so but I have even heard sermons on Christmas that say things like, Jesus was born so that he could be killed, that he might be raised from the dead, and you would go to heaven and be saved. And that is a complete corruption of the it gospel. Is. It absolutely is. Ugh. And so I thought to myself, what if the Christian church spent as much time talking about the incarnation as it talked about the resurrection? And that yes. is kind of what, that's really what Grounded is about. Um, to kind of go around and take the world so seriously. It's as if everywhere in my life, when I encounter life, I'm also encountering the incarnate, the embodiedness of God, of the Word, the Word made flesh. Because Throughout the whole of the New Testament, even when there are accounts of resurrection, the incarnation came first. 
And the resurrection doesn't cancel out the incarnation. As a matter of fact, the incarnation is an ever-present reality about, about God, about Jesus. The incarnation does not go away just because Jesus dies. The incarnation is the central truth of the life of Jesus. Yes. And we don't, we don't take it that way. No, we don't. Yeah, and so that's really kind of what I'm all about right now, um, is to try to imagine that theological reality lived out in my own life. Mm. And then you're asking the question about community. I'm trying to find other Christians who, who are hungry for that. Yep. And, um, you know, somehow we have to understand that in that longing, we're not alone, and that there are thousands and thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of other Christians who are eager to connect with one another around that theological reality and explore what that means to be church. And so I think that that means we're going to have to just try to figure out where and how those connections happen. We're going to be writing new liturgies, writing new hymns, um, you know, I think we press our own traditions uh, to stop with the bad metaphors and come up with some better ones. And so that might mean, you know, hey, stay, stay Presbyterian, for goodness sake. <laughs> but, but, you know, make sure that the Presbyterian Church understands that there have to be new pathways of liturgy and new pathways of hymnody and new pathways of preaching and new ways of gathering. And you're going to stick with them and make that happen. And you're not going to be colonized by the older stuff, but you're going to press and press and press. And there, you know, there is, this is happening. You know, I, there's a, like a movement within Lutheranism that I'm sort of fascinated by. It's mostly young adults and it's about decolonizing Lutheranism. Wow. And it's most, isn't that great? It's mostly around racial issues, which is an important entry point into this co- conversation. It is. Because it's, mo- it's mostly white people who believe in an old white God who sits in clouds. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. So, so weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's like, oh, yeah, it was a racialized God that's up there in the clouds, too. And so the, the decolonized Lutheran people have, have focused on the racial aspect of it. But as I'm watching them, I'm seeing they're sort of opening up the theological and liturgical aspects of it more broadly, too. And and so I think that there's different entry points into this sort of kind of vision of recreating community. But I, I feel the energy of a lot of it pressing in the same direction uh, towards a far more incarnated yes. sense of God's presence with us. So it's just work we have to do. I cannot tell you to go down the street to XYZ congregation and those people have it all together. And if you walk in that door, your spiritual life will be perfect and everything will be fine. Nope. Because that church, that church does not exist yet. And if you're hungry for this, that church, you got to make that church. And I, I, I wish it could be easier than that, but some generations, this is the job we get. And this is the job we got. It's an awesome job. I like it too. <laughs> it is an awesome job. I like it. Um, yeah. The, 
Some of the gatekeepers don't like it. The powers that be don't like it. But it's okay, we can love them too. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I, I'm sorry for that. You know, I'm sorry that I have to upset them sometimes. Yeah, it's all right. They but, need to be upset. Yeah. Do it with a smile. Yep. I try. <laughs> Me too. I really am a I really am a nice Methodist girl at heart. <laughs> it's obvious. It's obvious that yeah. you're you're lovely. Huh. Yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, and so I I try to my husband actually sometimes it will push me to say you have to go a little harder into this. It's, you're passionate about it, and I I thought you know really I am sort of like that that nice Methodist girl who was raised in the 1960s in Baltimore, and he goes Gee, some days Diana you just got to get rid of her. Fire <laughs> up and put her in the closet. That's right. We'll let you out later. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Ad- Adam and I are much the same way. When we started this podcast, we try our best not to offend too many people, but we we also realize that you know certain things we're going to have to push the envelope on a little bit. Uh, we like to prefer we prefer to call it you know we're just challenging you know old you know kind of older notions. So that's fine. There's nothing well, wrong with that. Well, I'm I'm really. I'm glad for it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because you are. The challenge and the reconstruction, that's actually, that is the retraditioning. That's the that's the baking of the bread. That's the brewing of the beer, you know? You have to take apart the old thing. You say the old recipe doesn't work. And then you say, well, let's cook something new here. And yep. so both of those are part of this living uh, kind of process of making sure that the wisdom moves into the future and doesn't just get locked in some museum somewhere. Some guy That's somewhere cool. said something like Semper Reformata. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? He, he, he was joking, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, That's man. A good thing to re- That's a good thing to remember. Because, you know, we're in the, this 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, yeah. We have a a special guest coming on soon who actually uh, wrote a book uh, in honor of the anniversary. So we're kind of excited to to dig into some some history. Heck yeah. So, well, we... Yeah, it's really important stuff right now. Absolutely. Timely, very timely, I think. But um, Mm -hmm. we have have one question left for you, and then, then we... We definitely have to talk about this this new book that you're working on. So, but before we get to that, um, one of the stories early on in Grounded that I thought was really interesting because it immediately brought to brought to mind um, some some moments within the Old Testament. And the and the thing is that you, you tell the story um, that I thought was really neat about how you lived in the country originally, you moved to the city, and you you attend this church in the city for so long, and then you move back to the country, and it's too far. Uh, to drive to go to the the church that you know that you were comfortable in and that that you were used to, and y- you mentioned in the book there's this quote where you say you always had believed that God lived in that building, and I couldn't help but think back to the destruction of the temple and these ancient Jewish people who were like, oh no, like God lives in there, and what are we going to do now that the temple's destroyed, and. Again, your story today about marching in the streets and and having these signs with the Beatitudes on them, it just keeps making me think about how I think current Christians know this that that God is you know isn't bound behind some old stuffy wall somewhere that God is got out with the people and that Jesus was a street preacher. I mean, Jesus would have been on the streets with the homeless man and the you know and the minorities and and for the people you know and. And yet, 
you know, it, it still seems like this is a lesson we're still learning. You know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that God is present in all things. And, and maybe it has to do with the fact that we've kind of bought into this consumeristic kind of business model for church, at least in the West. And and maybe, do you think, is that the reason that we're still arguing about things like, yeah, maybe it's a good idea to take care of the planet, or maybe we should take care of minorities or people who are being taken advantage of, you know? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, we do get our, uh, what I would call our spiritual attention redirected towards what is, I think, easy. Yeah. Yes. And, and in a very real sense, you know, that childhood church that I, that I grew up in, you know, that was... It was, a, it was kind of a beautiful world in some senses, you know, and it was a comforting world and it was a close world. Everyone knew one another. Um, and it was a, a world where it was easy to figure out. It was easy to figure out who was the pastor. It was easy to figure out that Jesus was nice. It was easy to figure out that we were supposed to do good things for people we liked. You know, it was all, it was, it was all, there was a level of ease about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the biblical account certainly is not about that. No, you know, <laughs> not so and easy. There is actually a story that was in the uh, in grounded, but got edited out. And I'm really sorry that this one story got edited out. And it goes right to your question. And um, when I was first starting to write the book, um, I be- I did some of the laying out of the narrative and the the themes of the book, when I was on a, a retreat in the mountains of Wyoming. So I was up in this amazing place with a lake and the mountains and hiking and working on my book. And it was, you know, it was unspeakably beautiful. And I was feeling very much the sort of the power of, you know, grounded and God with us. So I come home and I'm here in Washington, D.C. And I was, I, 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 I developed a case of writer's block. You know, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't know that I can write this book. I don't, I'm not hearing God as clearly as I was hearing God when I was up in the mountain. And so I, I went, I thought, well, I need to go someplace and kind of um, where I usually hear, you know, sort of the spiritual presence and kind of shake this loose. And so I thought, well, I think I'll drive up to the National Cathedral because that's always been a very special place to me. So I got in my car, drove up to the Washington National Cathedral, you know, this huge, it's, it's, I think it's the second biggest church building in the United States, sits up on this hill, towers above the city of Washington, D.C. And in the church, in the cathedral, there's a chapel, and it's called the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. And it's my favorite chapel in the whole of this gigantic building. And um, that's where I went. I thought, oh, if I'm going to hear God speak, it's going to be in the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. And so I go into the chapel, and I, I knelt by the altarpiece, which is this amazing uh, Wyeth painting of the, these different doves representing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then there are these beautiful kind of um, late 19th century neo-romantic angels, and then in the center, there's this this painting of Jesus, this glorious painting of Jesus, um, that's gold and white. And it's just like all about sort of glory and the power of the spirit. And so I'm praying right at the base of this altarpiece and I'm praying, God, I need to hear your voice. What do you have to say to me? 
And I look up at this painting of Jesus, and I heard a voice. And the voice said, get me out of here. Oh. (laughs) Yes. Why was that not in the book, Diana? Yeah, how could they cut that out? (laughs) I don't know why my editor hates Uh. (laughs) It's funny all the time. And so I look up and I said, what did you say, God? And and Jesus said it again, get me out of here. And Jesus said it to me three times, get me out of here. And, And I just went, oh my gosh. And I left the cathedral. Oh my and, and about a week later, I found myself riding down um, on a picnic bench by the river, not far away from my house. And that's when the book started really flowing. And I do write that part. I talk about writing by the river. Yeah. But it was, I, I, tr- I took that same notebook to the Washington National Cathedral, and that's when Jesus said to me, get me out of here. And then I sat by the river, and the book flowed. And so, you know, I think that it is just, the fact that young adults are not happy with the church right now. But I don't wonder if, just like in the Bible, in those times of exile, or the Tower of Babel story, or Babel, however you say that, um, when God actually destroys the building that they try to build up to heaven to reach God, that there aren't these times when God wants out of the building. Oh, man. Reminds me so much of like a Pete Rollins parable. He's got a couple that just really ring like that. But man, my mouth was hanging open so long that I was drooling on my notes here when you were telling that story. <laughs> Believe me, it was the last thing I expected Jesus to say to me in that chapel. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would start writing some great, you know, the great American novel or something. You know, and Jesus looks at me and says, get me out of here. <laughs> I think that that is it, though. Yeah, I really do. And you, that goes back to the incarnation. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, and that's what I'm. That's what I am really trying to write about now, and uh, you know, just how God is present with us in the world of 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 our you know experience. And uh, so, so this is sort of the turn in my work. Is I think that the church, in some senses, might just have to take care of itself. You know, and in, in that it's going to have to listen to where God is and isn't, and we have work to do to try to help the church, which is us, of course, be more faithful and the liturgies and the prayers and preaching of the church be more faithful. Uh, you know, but ultimately I'm, I'm just trying to listen, you know, to where God is present now. And, um, that's, uh, that's how I'm trying to write. Man. Well, we can't wait to hear more about that work. I think we're going to have to, when you get a little bit closer to publishing that, we're going to have to have a, a nice long conversation about it that we'll record for everyone to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Cause actually the, the next book I was going to do a whole book on the fruit of the spirit. And I thought that kind of worked. I write a book called grounded and then write a book called fruitful. Um, That's That's good stuff. Yeah. See that isn't that a good idea. And then my editor said to me, uh, do you know there are nine of those things in the in that verse? <laughs> <laughs> nine <laughs> chapters. Says, yeah, he, that's what I said. Nine chapters, and he said, "No, that's a really long book, Diana. I know you. It would take you nine years to write that book." <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> nine and, books. Okay. Nine books. Then <laughs> there we go. I, 
I did suggest that. He said, well, why don't you pick one and just test it out? <laughs> and so we, talk, we talked about it, and I decided to write on gratitude. Mm. Oh, wow. And, That's awesome. Um, it's talk about a difficult thing to have right now. The last thing I feel today is grateful. I'm, I'm terrified that the world's going to exist six months from now. Yeah. Um, and so I am putting myself in this space with this amazing sort of reality that if Jesus was about anything, uh, Jesus was about the practice of being able to be thankful um, and understanding gratitude in ways that were so radical and so life-giving, even though he was a victim of the empire itself. Yes. And so that's, that's what I'm writing about right now, and it's really hard. <laughs> As a oh, matter of fact, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's going to uh, so be good I then. That, yeah, I hope that in the that that means that I'm really learning something and that it's something important and something that will give life to others to, um, to appreciate the words that I'm struggling to put in the world. Well, we, we certainly can't wait to, to read it. And, um, and for our listeners out there, I, I mean, we, Adam and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation to say the least, uh, if you couldn't tell, but, um, where can our listeners go to, uh, get a copy? Like I said earlier in the show, um, your, your book Grounded is now in paperback. Uh, where's the best place to get to get your book, and uh, where's the best place for them to go to keep on top of what what you're up to? Well, you know, online booksellers are always great, and I'm happy to recommend those. But I also love to remind everyone that in almost every town in America, there's some independent bookseller who is struggling to keep his or her doors open. And so don't hesitate to call that person up and see if they can order books for you. Um, it sometimes takes a little longer and the response isn't quite as, meet, as immediate, but um, you do a good turn for a good person if you buy books from somebody who's struggling to keep a small business open. Uh, so so that's, all my books can be had through, you know, Amazon, Barnes Noble, those the big guys, and the, the smaller Family stores can get stuff for you too. Um, other than that, I can be found at my website, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am edgy on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's and why we I follow you. A little, a, a little inspirational as well as the edge. And uh, I also have Facebook, a public Facebook page and a private one. And I'm sorry. The private one. Mark Zuckerberg won't let me have any more friends. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll start a petition. A, requ- <laughs> a request, he won't even reach me for that one. But uh, there is a public Facebook page too that you can join in. And like I said, a website. So I'm online. I'm a real person. I'm a writer. Well, this has been beyond delightful, enriching, inspiring, thought-provoking. Um, you've given us so much to think about and so much to go do. I think that uh, a lot of this has been a call to action, and we appreciate that. So thank you for your um, passion. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your edge. And thank you for doing, oh. what, doing what you do. Yeah, and I, oh. I, have to, I was going to say, I have to, real quick, I have, to, I have to give a shout-out to my dad. I'd be remiss if I didn't do that because my dad actually, he's like, she'll never remember me, 
and, and I'm sure you wouldn't because you, you do a lot of uh, public speaking, but he actually met you some years ago when you spoke at Trinity Lutheran Seminary here in Columbus, Ohio, and has been a monster fan of yours uh, for years. And so even before we started this podcast, uh, your name has been in the back of my brain and my dad's like, you have to talk to Diana Butler Bass. And so, uh, so I know he'll be listening to this one for sure. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I remember that event at Trinity. That was, that was lovely. I thought that her chapel was beautiful and the people that day were awesome. So I don't remember him per se necessarily, but <laughs> I, do, I do remember being there and how good that community was. Oh, and, that's awesome. And you know, and you know what? That that's kind of neat to me because uh, my audience to this point has been a bit older, you know, because it's mostly mainliners, and so most of the people who know my work are fifty and older. And that the son of one of the people who has been reading my books for a long time would be picking up my work now um, means a lot to me. And, oh, that's great! And, uh, and my daughter, who is a first year student at UVA this year. Um, she has actually never read anything her mother has written. How dare she? She, knows, <laughs> she, she just she just knows her mother, and she's heard me That's preach true. stuff, and she <laughs> likes me, you know, pretty well. But she she's taking a class this semester at UVA called uh, Spirituality in America, and she gets the syllabus. Oh, my gosh. My oh, book, no. My books are on her syllabus. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Poetic justice. Now, did she, has she has she explained this to the professor yet? Well, the professor knows me, and, and he was <laughs> he and I were laughing about it. We just let her figure it out for herself. That's but, great. Um, so, but it was just so funny because she started reading one of my books over Christmas, and so she one you know lunchtime we, we were talking about this, and she says, "You know, Mom, I started reading Christianity after religion," and she said. It's really good. It's really good, See, Mom. A new, uh, newfound respect, you know, come holidays. <laughs> and it was so great, though, because then she went on and she said, so she's 19, she said, you know, you really are, are listening to my generation. Yes. And I, and I went, well, I try. You know? <laughs> See, now you've got cool, cool mom status now, so. <laughs> well, I... I so I'm trying to not just write, you know, for older mainline pastors and churchgoers. I'm really trying to write books that speak to the middle of where so many people are longing to be right now. And I don't know that age uh, really makes a difference there. It doesn't. I think we no. all we're we're all feeling this. And so thank you very much for the time that you've given this. And thank you for reading my stuff. I really appreciate it. We're going to get you popular with the youngsters, Diana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all that does, I hope that keeps me young. That's the main thing. <laughs> you're all, you're already that. young. Yes. You're Aww. already young. Aww. No, we, we absolutely love the book, and uh, we could not wait to sit down and talk with you. And we just really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your schedule to sit down and talk with us. And I think you'll sell at least five to six more books. After. Yeah. We've <laughs> no. got a big fat crush on you, Diana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Big fat crush on Diana Butler Bass right now. Oh, thanks. thanks. No, this is, oh, this is I, great. I, I look forward to someday meeting you in person, and I hope people will enjoy uh, eavesdropping on our conversation. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to do it again when the, when the new book comes out uh, and, uh, and 
again, just thank you so much for your time and, uh, and we, we appreciate you. So people will be, people will be going out to get that book. I have a feeling. Oh goodness. <laughs> now let's see. She is the first female voice of 2017, mm-hmm. right? Um, wow. Yep. I mean, wow in general, but wow. Just so I'm just never gonna get over the fact that we get to do this. She just it, and it's funny too. I got I think I gave credit in the episode, but I have to give all credit to to my dad on this one. Yep. Uh, huge fan. Uh, I remember he told me, he's like, I, I went and saw her speak. I got her autograph, you know, and all this stuff. And yeah, I remember you telling me about that. He was like, you got to get her on the show. And, and right around that time, um, I think one of the publishers that we're friends with, uh, said, you know, ground is coming out, um, in paperback this year. It's the one year anniversary. Uh, you know, we, we think this book is very relevant for the time and wow. Yeah. Incredible so book. relevant. Mm-hmm. So relevant to so much of what uh, a lot of us are picking up from people like Peter Rollins and Richard Rohr and um, even Rob Bell. And um, it's funny, a book that I'm reading right now from a long time ago by Bishop John T. Robinson uh, called Honest to God is all about this idea of not escaping, but finding the beyond in the here and now, finding the transcendent in the immediate, the common and the eminent. And like, this is just a theme that unfortunately is not something that televangelists really get out there. It's not something that Christian radio is getting out there. It's not something that the big booksellers are getting out there because honestly, it doesn't hit that uh, loud minority nerve that sells a bunch of crap, right? Because it's it's almost like, oh, that that almost sounds so like, common sense that almost sounds so normal that almost sounds so like I could get behind that it doesn't sound so polarizing it doesn't it's really basic mm-hmm. mm. I just I just love how she connects everything to nature too love that and, and I think she points out in her book how growing up she was like the anti outdoors type person mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet so the irony is is pretty thick in the fact that she's like you know I'm, I'm walking out amongst nature and I'm finding God there. Which by the way is exactly Paul's argument in the book of Romans. Just <laughs> FYI. That's weird. Mm. <laughs> so maybe this isn't like a whole bunch of liberal crazy kids just pulling everything about. Maybe we're actually trying to get back to the essence of all this stuff. Yeah. Could not agree more, man. Jeez, dude. That was that was a blast. Who what kind of music are we listening to here? Cause uh, as always, I'm really excited about this one. Very, very good job. This is uh not only an, uh, a brand new artist out of England, but she is also an avid listener of the podcast. Her producer actually reached out to us a while back and said, "Hey, would you consider using this music?" and and uh, we were like, "Well, you know, let, we'll take a listen to it." And we listened to it. We're like, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible!" Um, her name is Greta Isaac, and if you don't know who she is, she's all over Spotify, iTunes, all that good stuff. Go check her out. Um, not sure if she'll have more singles out by, by the time this episode comes out, but she's got a few out right now, um, that are just unbelievable. She's extraordinarily talented. We're huge fans. Uh, we were so happy to be able to feature her music on here. Um, go tell her that we sent you. She's all over Twitter and and social media, um, just phenomenal and, and extreme, extremely kind. So, so we're, we're super excited to, to feature her this week. So much fun. Yeah. I love it. I don't know how you 
make this magic happen with the music. <laughs> Such a good job, man. It's fun, man. It's a lot of fun. And uh, um, ever since I started my new job, John has become the uh, acting CEO of the, the Deconstructionist <laughs> Podcast. And he's also uh, the, the entire workforce, the HR department, <laughs> logistics, control, logistics, <laughs> booking agent, <laughs> booking agent, editing. So uh, send your donations directly to John's <laughs> bank account right now. Oh man, if this wasn't so much fun, you know, it it uh, it really like we appreciate all all the feedback you guys give us, and uh, and, and the fact that we can tell you guys are having just as much fun uh, as we are as we do this. So. Um, it just makes it worthwhile, and uh, we hope that this was beneficial. Um, one thing we have coming up, actually, in, in the coming weeks as we get into this next month, um, we are um, we are putting out a series um, of episodes that we're really, really proud of um, that we think are 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 absolutely um, necessary uh, right now, um, and that is a a, a series on um, different religions. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be giving you a, a little taste, obviously in an hour, we can't, you know, give you everything, but, uh, um, we're going to provide you guys with tons of resources that you can, uh, books that you can go out and get, uh, people that you can listen to. And we just think that dialogue with other religions, especially now is, is just absolutely crucial. It's something that we, we should be doing, uh, especially if you happen to be Christian and listening to this, uh, it, it is absolutely necessary, uh, for us to not only listen um, but but engage in, in healthy dialogue with our brothers and sisters of other faiths, other traditions, other religions, whatever, however you want to put it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I know these these uh, interviews that we've we've done um, have been extraordinarily beneficial and eye opening for us, um, just in the way of um, just how little we knew. I right, think. right. I think it's I think it's worth putting here at the end that this is you know the deconstructionists podcast is has to be about more than just different ways of thinking about Protestant evangelical or fundamentalist or whatever Christianity. Um, it has to also be about deconstructing or, or disorienting or decentering uh, how we look at all other ways of seeing the world because we've got everybody labeled and we think we have everybody figured out mm. and that's dangerous. And that is not a recipe for love because if you are blind to who somebody actually is because of how you th- already think of them, then you can't really see them. And how can you love somebody that you can't see? Yeah. So that's kind of my little spiel on why we need to get better at this. And we can, again, thank our CEO here for recommending <laughs> this. Uh, uh, so, yeah, thank you, man. Thanks, thanks for putting this on our radar. I'm excited for this next series. Yeah, me too. And... uh Again, as always, uh, you know, thanks for supporting us. If you uh, if you want to buy a T-shirt, um, all proceeds from the T-shirts off of our website that you can find through the donation link um, go straight back into the podcast, helping us pay for all the things that we need to pay for to keep this thing going. And uh, and you get a cool T-shirt. And uh, we have new designs coming out soon, as well as some other merchandise. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll make sure to post that to social media. With that, thanks for hanging with us, guys. Us and Diana, Butler, Bass. Uh, so much fun being with you, as always. Hope you're having as much fun as we are. And um, hopefully you're doing well on your journeys out there, finding some community and um, really getting, getting to know yourselves and your questions and feeling safe and making others safe. We love you. Uh, we're, we're happy we get to do this with you for now. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Until next time, everybody. 